0: Manuscript found on the coast of Yucatan. On August 20, 1917, I, Karl Heinrich Graf von Altberg Ehrenstein, Lieutenant Commander in the Imperial German Navy and in charge of the submarine U-29, Deposit this bottle and record in the Atlantic Ocean at a point to me unknown, but probably about north latitude twenty degrees, west longitude thirty-five degrees, where my ship lies disabled on the ocean floor. I do so because of my desire to set certain unusual facts before the public, a thing I shall not in all probability survive to accomplish in person, since the circumstances surrounding me are as menacing as they are extraordinary involved not only the hopeless crippling of the U-29, but the impairment of my Iron German will in a manner most disastrous. On the afternoon of June 18, as reported by wireless to the U-61 bound for Kiel, we torpedoed the British freighter Victory, New York to Liverpool, in north latitude 45 degrees 16 minutes, west longitude 28 degrees 34 minutes, permitting the crew to leave in boats in order to obtain a good cinema view for the Admiralty records. The ship sank quite picturesquely, bow first, the stern rising high out of the water, whilst the hull shot down perpendicularly to the bottom of the sea. Our camera missed nothing, and I regret that so fine a reel of film should never reach Berlin. After that, we sank the lifeboats with our guns and submerged. When we rose to the surface about sunset... A seaman's body was found on the deck, hands gripping the railing in curious fashion. The poor fellow was young, rather dark, and very handsome, probably an Italian or Greek and undoubtedly of the victory's crew. He had evidently sought refuge on the very ship which had been forced to destroy his own, one more victim of the unjust war of aggression which the English pig-dogs are waging upon the fatherland. Our men searched him for souvenirs, and found in his coat pocket a very odd bit of ivory, carved to represent a youth's head crowned with laurel. My fellow officer, Lieutenant Clens, believed that the thing was of great age and artistic value, so took it from the man for himself. How it had ever come into the possession of a common sailor, neither he nor I could imagine. As the dead man was thrown overboard, there occurred two incidents which created much disturbance amongst the crew. The fellow's eyes had been closed, but in the dragging of his body to the rail they were jarred open, and many seemed to entertain a queer delusion that they gazed steadily and mockingly at Schmidt and Zimmer, who were bent over the corpse. The boatswain Mueller, an elderly man who would have known better had he not been a superstitious Alsatian swine, became so excited by this impression that he watched the body in the water and swore that after it sank a little... It drew its limbs into a swimming position and sped away to the south under the waves. The sea was rather rough, so we descended to a depth where the waves were less troublesome. Here we were comparatively calm, despite a somewhat puzzling southward current, which we could not identify from our oceanographic charts. What worried us more was the talk of Boatswain Mueller which grew wilder as night came on. He was in a detestably childish state and babbled of some illusion of dead bodies drifting past the undersea portholes, bodies which looked at him intensely and which he recognized, in spite of bloating, as having seen dying during some of our victorious German exploits. And he said that the young man we had found and tossed overboard was their leader, this was very gruesome and abnormal, so we confined Muller in irons and had him soundly whipped. The men were not pleased at his punishment, but discipline was necessary. We also denied the request of a delegation headed by Seaman Zimmer that the curious carved ivory head be cast into the sea. Everyone seemed inclined to be silent now, as though holding a secret fear. Many were ill, but none made a disturbance.' Lieutenant Klenz chafed under the strain and was annoyed by the merest trifles, such as the school of dolphins which gathered about the U 29 in increasing numbers and the growing intensity of that southward current which was not on our chart. The explosion in the engine room at 2 p.m. was wholly a surprise. No defect in the machinery or carelessness in the men had been noticed, yet without warning the ship was racked from end to end with a colossal shock. Lieutenant Klenz hurried to the engine room, finding the fuel tank and most of the mechanism shattered, and engineers Rob and Schneider instantly killed. Our situation had suddenly become grave indeed, for though the chemical air regenerators were intact, and though we could use the devices for raising and submerging the ship and opening the hatches as long as compressed air and storage batteries might hold out, we were powerless to propel or guide the submarine." To seek rescue in the lifeboats would be to deliver ourselves into the hands of enemies unreasonably embittered against our great German nation, and our wireless had failed ever since the victory affair to put us in touch with a fellow U-boat of the Imperial Navy. From the hour of the accident till July 2nd, we drifted constantly to the south, almost without plans, and encountering no vessel. Dolphins still encircled the U-29, a somewhat remarkable circumstance considering the distance we had covered. On the morning of July 2nd, we sighted a warship flying American colors, and the men became very restless in their desire to surrender. Finally, Lieutenant Klenz had to shoot a seaman named Traub, who urged this un-German act with especial violence. This quieted the crew for the time, and we submerged unseen. The next afternoon, a dense flock of seabirds appeared from the south, and the ocean began to heave ominously. Closing our hatches, we awaited developments until we realized that we must either submerge or be swamped in the mounting waves. Our air pressure and electricity were diminishing, and we wished to avoid all unnecessary use of our slender mechanical resources, but in this case there was no choice. As the men grew more frightened at this undersea imprisonment, some of them began to mutter again about Lieutenant Cleanse's ivory image, but the sight of an automatic pistol calmed them. We kept the poor devils as busy as we could, tinkering at the machinery, even when we knew it was useless. Clens and I usually slept at different times, and it was during my sleep, about 5 a.m. July 4th, the general mutiny broke loose. The six remaining pigs of seamen, suspecting that we were lost, had suddenly burst into a mad fury at our refusal to surrender to the Yankee battleship two days before, and were in a delirium of cursing and destruction. They roared like the animals they were, and broke instruments and furniture indiscriminately, screaming about such nonsense as the curse of the ivory image and the dark dead youth who looked at them and swam away. Lieutenant Clenn seemed paralyzed and inefficient, as one might expect of a soft womanish line and I shot all six men, for it was necessary, and made sure that none remained alive. We expelled the bodies through the double hatches and were alone in the U-29. Clenze seemed very nervous and drank heavily. It was decided that we remain alive as long as possible, using the large stock of provisions and chemical supply of oxygen, none of which had suffered from the crazy antics of those swinehound seamen. Our compasses, depth gauges, and other delicate instruments were ruined so that henceforth our only reckoning would be guesswork, based on our watches, the calendar, and our apparent drift, as judged by any objects we might spy through the portholes or from the conning tower. Fortunately, we had storage batteries still capable of long use, both for interior lighting and for the searchlight. We often cast a beam around the ship, but saw only dolphins swimming parallel to our own drifting course. I was scientifically interested in these dolphins, for, though the ordinary Delphinus delphus is a cetacean mammal, unable to subsist without air, I watched one of the swimmers closely for two hours, and did not see him alter his submerged condition. We noted the marine fauna and flora, and read much on the subject in the books I had carried with me for spare moments. I could not help observing, however, the inferior scientific knowledge of my companion— His mind was not Prussian, but given to imaginings and speculations which have no value. The fact of our coming death affected him curiously, and he would frequently pray in remorse over the men, women, and children we had sent to the bottom, forgetting that all things are noble which serve the German state. After a time he became noticeably unbalanced, gazing for hours at his ivory image and weaving fanciful stories of the lost and forgotten things under the sea. Sometimes, as a psychological experiment, I would lead him on in these wanderings and listen to his endless poetical quotations and tales of sunken ships. I was very sorry for him, for I disliked to see a German suffer, but he was not a good man to die with. For myself, I was proud, knowing how the fatherland would revere my memory and how my sons would be taught to be men like me. On August 9, we espied the ocean floor and sent a powerful beam from the searchlight over it. It was a vast, undulating plain, mostly covered with seaweed and strewn with the shells of small mollusks. Here and there were slimy objects of puzzling contour draped with weeds and encrusted with barnacles, which Clen's declared must be ancient ships lying in their graves. He was puzzled by one thing— a peak of solid matter protruding above the ocean bed nearly four feet at its apex, about two feet thick with flat sides and smooth upper surfaces which met at a very obtuse angle. I called the peak a bit of outcropping rock, but Clen's thought he saw carvings on it. It was at 3.15 p.m. August 12th that poor Clen's went wholly mad. He had been in the conning tower, using the searchlight, when I saw him bound into the library compartment where I sat reading, and his face at once betrayed him. I will repeat here what he said, underlining the words he emphasized. He is calling. He is calling. I hear him. We must go. As he spoke, he took his ivory image from the table, pocketed it, and seized my arm in an effort to drag me up the companionway to the deck. In a moment I understood that he meant to open the hatch and plunge with me into the water outside, a vagary of suicidal and homicidal mania for which I was scarcely prepared. As I hung back and attempted to soothe him, he grew more violent, saying, Come now, do not wait until later. It is better to repent and be forgiven than to defy and be condemned. Then I tried the opposite of the soothing plan and told him he was mad, pitifully demented, But he was unmoved, and cried, "'If I am mad, it is mercy. "'May the gods pity the man "'who in his callousness can remain sane to the hideous end. "'Come and be mad whilst he still calls with mercy.' This outburst seemed to relieve a pressure in his brain, for as he finished, he grew much milder, asking me to let him depart alone if I would not accompany him. My course at once became clear, He was a German, but only a Rhinelander and a commoner, and he was now a potentially dangerous madman. By complying with his suicidal request, I could immediately free myself from one who was no longer a companion, but a menace. So as he climbed the ladder, I went to the levers, and allowing proper time intervals, operated the machinery which sent him to his death. After I saw that he was no longer in the boat, I threw the searchlight around the water in an effort to obtain a last glimpse of him since I wished to ascertain whether the water pressure would flatten him, as it theoretically should, or whether the body would be unaffected, like those extraordinary dolphins. I did not, however, succeed in finding my late companion, for the dolphins were massed thickly and obscuringly about the conning tower. The next day I ascended to the conning tower and commenced the customary searchlight explorations, Northward the view was much the same as it had been all the four days since we had sighted the bottom, but I perceived that the drifting of the U-29 was less rapid. As I swung the beam around to the south, I noticed that the ocean floor ahead fell away in a marked declivity, and bore curiously regular blocks of stone in certain places, disposed as if in accordance with definite patterns. The boat did not at once descend to match the greater ocean depth, so I was soon forced to adjust the searchlight to cast a sharply downward beam. I am not given to emotion of any kind, but my amazement was very great when I saw what lay revealed in that electrical glow. And yet, as one reared in the best couture of Prussia, I should not have been amazed, for geology and tradition alike tell us of great transpositions in oceanic and continental areas. What I saw was an extended and elaborate array of ruined edifices, all of magnificent though unclassified architecture, and in various stages of preservation. Most appeared to be of marble gleaming whitely in the rays of the searchlight, and the general plan was of a large city at the bottom of a narrow valley with numerous isolated temples and villas on the steep slopes above. Roofs were fallen and columns were broken, but there still remained an air of immemorially ancient splendor which nothing could efface. Confronted at last with the Atlantis I had formerly deemed largely a myth, I was the most eager of explorers. At the bottom of that valley a river once had flowed, for as I examined the sea more closely, I beheld the remains of stone and marble bridges and sea walls, and terraces and embankments once verdant and beautiful. In my enthusiasm I became nearly as idiotic and sentimental as poor Clen's, and was very tardy in noticing that the southward current had ceased at last, allowing the U-29 to settle slowly down upon the sunken city as an aeroplane settles upon a town of the upper earth. I was slow, too, in realizing that the school of unusual dolphins had vanished. In about two hours, the boat rested in a paved plaza close to the rocky wall of the valley. On one side, I could view the entire city as it sloped from the plaza down to the old riverbank. On the other side, in startling proximity, I was confronted by the richly ornate and perfectly preserved façade of a great building, evidently a temple. I cannot reckon the number of hours I spent in gazing at the sunken city with its buildings, arches, statues, and bridges— And the colossal temple with its beauty and mystery. Though I knew that death was near, my curiosity was consuming, and I threw the searchlight's beam about in eager quest. The shaft of light permitted me to learn many details, but refused to show anything within the gaping door of the rock hewn temple, and after a time I turned off the current, conscious of the need of conserving power. The rays were now perceptibly dimmer than they had been during the weeks of drifting and as if sharpened by the coming deprivation of light, my desire to explore the watery secrets grew. I, a German, should be the first to tread those eon-forgotten ways. All I could do was to turn on the waning searchlight of the U-29, and with its aid walk up the temple steps and study the exterior carvings. The shaft of light entered the door at an upward angle, and I peered in to see if I could glimpse anything but all in vain. Saturday the 18th I spent in total darkness, tormented by thoughts and memories that threatened to overcome my German will. Clenz had gone mad and perished before reaching this sinister remnant of a past unwholesomely remote, and advised me to go with him. Was indeed fate preserving my reason only to draw me irresistibly to an end more horrible and unthinkable than any man has dreamed of? Clearly, my nerves were sorely taxed, and I must cast off these impressions of weaker men. I could not sleep Saturday night, and turned on the lights regardless of the future. It was annoying that the electricity should not last out the air and provisions. I revived my thoughts of euthanasia and examined my automatic pistol— Toward morning I must have dropped asleep with the lights on, for I awoke in darkness yesterday afternoon to find the batteries dead. Feeling the need of more rest, I took a sedative and secured some more sleep. My nervous condition was reflected in my dreams, for I seemed to hear the cries of drowning persons, and to see dead faces pressing against the portholes of the boat. And among the dead faces was the living, mocking face of the youth with the ivory image. I must be careful how I record my awaking today, for I am unstrung, and much hallucination is necessarily mixed with fact. Psychologically, my case is most interesting, and I regret that it cannot be observed scientifically by a competent German authority. It was an oral delusion, a sensation of rhythmic, melodic sound as of some wild yet beautiful chant or choral hymn coming from the outside through the absolutely soundproof hull of the U-29. Convinced of my psychological and nervous abnormality, I lighted some matches and poured a stiff dose of sodium bromide solution, which seemed to calm me to the extent of dispelling the illusion of sound. But the phosphorescence remained. It is well that the reader accept nothing which follows as objective truth for since the events transcend natural law, they are necessarily the subjective and unreal creations of my overtaxed mind. When I attained the conning tower, I found the sea in general far less luminous than I had expected. There was no animal or vegetable phosphorescence about, and the city that sloped down to the river was invisible in blackness. What I did see was not spectacular, not grotesque or terrifying yet it removed my last vestige of trust in my consciousness. For the door and windows of the undersea temple hewn from the rocky hill were vividly aglow with a flickering radiance as from a mighty altar flame far within. Later incidents are chaotic. As I stared at the uncannily lighted door and windows, I became subject to the most extravagant visions, Visions so extravagant that I cannot even relate them. I fancied that I discerned objects in the temple, objects both stationary and moving, and seemed to hear again the unreal chant that had floated to me when first I awaked. And over all rose thoughts and fears which centered in the youth from the sea and the ivory image whose carving was duplicated on the frieze and columns of the temple before me. I thought of poor Klenz and wondered where his body rested with the image he had carried back into the sea. He had warned me of something, and I had not heeded. But he was a soft-headed Rhinelander who went mad at troubles a Prussian could bear with ease. The rest is very simple. My impulse to visit and enter the temple has now become an inexplicable and imperious command which ultimately cannot be denied. My own German will no longer controls my acts, and volition is henceforward possible only in minor matters. Such madness it was which drove Clenze to his death, bareheaded and unprotected in the ocean. But I am a Prussian and a man of sense, and will use to the last what little will I have. When first I saw that I must go, I prepared my diving suit, helmet, and air regenerator for instant donning, and immediately commenced to write this hurried chronicle in the hope that it may some day reach the world. I shall seal the manuscript in a bottle and entrust it to the sea as I leave the U-29 forever. I have no fear, not even from the prophecies of the madman cleanse. What I have seen cannot be true, and I know that this madness of my own will at most lead only to suffocation when my air is gone. The light in the temple is a sheer delusion, and I shall die calmly, like a German, in the black and forgotten depths.